This morning's passage, as has been read for you just a moment earlier, addresses perhaps the greatest unifying theme of Holy Scripture. So if you're thinking uh, from your Old Testament text to your New Testament text and thinking, what is that overarching unifying theme? If you could kind of centralize the message of Holy Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, is there a kind of a common web of ideas or a unifying theme or feature in the Word of God, whereby other elements of that same proclamation, that same word, are thereby organized. This text nails that unifying theme. The unifying theme of Holy Scripture, whether we're in Genesis with Adam and Eve in the garden, or when we're in consummation glory in the book of Revelation, is the kingdom of God. That, I would argue, is the unifying feature of Holy Scripture. In fact, just anecdotally, the opening sermon recorded in the Gospel of Mark, that is the first sermon that our Lord preaches, begins this way, quote, this is Jesus speaking in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is is at hand. What is the response to the presence of the kingdom? What should one do that the kingdom is at hand? The time has been fulfilled. These are the words of our Lord. What should be a response? This he says, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the implication. That's the command that is attached with the presence of the kingdom. Should I just learn about it, think about it? What ought I do in hearing about it? You ought repent and believe in the gospel. Again, the kingdom of God, he goes on in Luke 4. Now, we handled this months back, but it's the same, whether it's Mark, whether it's Matthew, whether it's Luke. Luke 4, 43, very beginning of Luke's gospel as well. Here is our Lord's word regarding his ministry. Verse 43 of the fourth chapter of Luke. I must preach the good news. That is, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Then verse 43 ends this way. For I was sent for this very purpose. You see, when our Lord comes onto the scene in the first century and is preaching what he must, he, is, he, he, he must preach the kingdom of God. The weight of the ministry that is before him is clarifying and proclaiming the kingdom of God. It isn't something brand new where, where someone says, what do you mean by the kingdom? We have no concept of this. No, again, the unifying feature of both the Old and New Testaments is this topic of the kingdom of God. It's not something brand new. Rather, again, the kingdom of God is a concept as old as creation itself. Yet, with the coming of Christ, it has arrived. Or in this instance, as we see it in Luke 17, it has arrived on earth in a totally new way. It's not a brand new concept. It's not something when he began speaking, I must proclaim the kingdom of God. Everyone's going to say, what is that? But he must proclaim it. And the response he's after is one of, I hear what you're saying, 
And what ought I do in hearing? I ought to repent and believe in the good news proclaimed to me about the king and that kingdom. That's what I ought to do with this information. The Dutch Reformed theologian, Herman Ritterboss, once wrote this, quote, The kingdom of God is the central theme of the entire revelation of Jesus in the New Testament. So again, whether you're in the Old Testament or you're moving to the New Testament, beginning with Matthew and going to Revelation, you're dealing with what is an organizing feature or is there a center? Yes, the kingdom of God. You see it, um, and we don't have time to go there, but you realize Luke and Acts are working in tandem, kind of like you you have your book one, book two. When you open Acts and you begin at the very beginning, before our Lord ascends, he's there and he appears to many and gives of many evidences of his physical resurrection. And in that passage, he spends 40 days there speaking with individuals. And what is the content of his speech? Acts 1, it's clearly written, the kingdom of God. He preaches it, proclaims it, explains it from a perspective of a now-risen king gathering a kingdom people. Forty days. You go then from, is it just Jesus' ministry, and whether you see it as it goes past Acts into the epistles and forward in the rest of the New Testament, and you see it in the ministry of the apostles as well. The kingdom of God is that central feature. Paul, you recall, when he's converted and then he begins uh, to preach the good news, what good news, specifically in the book of Acts as well, as you move to the end, the last chapter, maybe around 28 or so in the book of Acts, what is the content of Paul's ministry? The kingdom of God. The very last comment, in fact, in the book of Acts, in chapter 28, I believe, I, I, I might be getting my chapter numbers wrong. I think there's 28 chapters there. Um, either which way, go to the last one. Um, and you'll see there at the very last portion, as Luke is writing, remember, it's significant. Luke is writing this. This is significant. This is the central feature of the ministry of our Lord and the central feature of the ministry of the apostles after him. There is a new king. He has risen from the dead. He is gathering a people. And to become a kingdom citizen is to be one who hears that message of You can be forgiven. And you repent and receive. Rest solely upon him as your king. And you thereby become a citizen of this kingdom. Again, the last words of Paul. He spent two years um, at the end of Acts 28. It says that he spent two years there roughly, additionally, conducting ministry to all who came to him, preaching and explaining, expounding upon a central theme of ministry. And that is the kingdom of God once again. So in light of the weight of what I'm putting forward, that the kingdom is something as old as creation itself, and it is moving forward across time and space all the way to its consummation point or its terminal point, where human history is concluded and the kingdom physically manifests itself in the earth. It's not a surprise then that we come across a text like this morning where the Pharisees want to talk about the kingdom. Again, if Jesus is the Son of God, 
And he is going to be God's chosen king over a peoples that he gathers. Then it is quite obvious question to ask him, hey, you, son of God, future king, king maybe now, Messiah, tell us about the kingdom then. And it's not that surprising then also that he would follow and look at his disciples. So you can kind of picture the conversation going, him and Pharisees, these individuals who are asking of him, and his disciples who are likewise a part of the scene. And so he speaks directly as asked. And then you'll notice a shift in the text after two or so verses. He then begins to address his own disciples on the same topic of kingdom and one's expectations for it. So with this central piece of the biblical, kind of the coherence of the Bible under the kingdom, let's begin in our text this morning to learn what we can of our Lord's instruction regarding the kingdom that is both present and the kingdom that is to come. Let's just jump right into verse 20 there in the text, and then we'll kind of work our way through the text all the way to the conclusion of 37. Beginning, though, in verse 20, says, Being asked by the, Pharisee, by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Hey, look, here it is. Or there, it's over there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, there's a few things we're going to have to deal with here between the comments our Lord makes in 20 and 21, but there are two particular features that I want us to zero in on in our Lord's response for the better understanding that we also might have regarding the kingdom that is, at this point in the text, he's explaining the kingdom that is present. So consider yourself in this discussion as a disciple, one who is grasping, is the kingdom present now? And as a Christian, as a, as a fellow believer, consider that question in your own mind. Is this kingdom present? And do I belong to it in a meaningful way in the present? There's two key features here to our Lord's response that I find interesting for sure. The first one, consider the feature of time in relationship to the kingdom. Think about it and the feature of time, what our Lord gives to us regarding the kingdom and how it relates to time, right? They're asking a very particular question in verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Notice our Lord's answer. It's not coming with signs to be observed. Isn't that an interesting response to a question of time? No, 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 I'm not asking about how will we see it. What I'm asking you is, when is it coming? Do you notice how he responds there? Kind of shifts the focus of discussion regarding the kingdom away from looking to signs, away from trying to figure out the timeline of the kingdom. At the very least, his answer It's not coming by signs. Eliminates the idea that the kingdom of God is going to appear and rumble into town with a number of apocalyptic evidences. Well, we know this is going to happen first, then this is going to happen, then that's going to happen. 
He expressly says, no, 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 you cannot look at the kingdom that way. When is it coming? A question that many people have, right? And he doesn't say, well, in this year, in this date. Or, well, don't get caught up in looking at the dates. He shifts the conversation completely. You cannot determine its arrival rumbling to town based on outward physical evidences. So you're emphasizing that. When, when, when? I'll be able to determine it's coming. No, you cannot determine it's coming. In other words, you will not be able to predict the arrival of the kingdom based on outward physical signs. How many people have made lots of money in ministry, I guess if you call it ministry, speaking predictively about the Lord's return? Here we have a direct statement, you will not be able to see it in this manner. And it's not just a small little comment he makes on the side. Notice how the text continues. He double downs on his answer. So the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Wait, no, no, we're, we're, we're doing all the observation of the signs. No, you cannot. You cannot predict the movement of the kingdom this way. Are you sure? Verse 21. Nor will they say, look, Here it is. I have an evidence. I can see it. It's rumbling into town. Look at the way that the clouds are forming. Or, there it is. It's over there. No, I'm, I'm trying to reinforce this idea that you cannot predict it's coming based on current events. And, and, and that's the issue of time. But there's the second feature I want to point to you, um, point out to you, and that is the feature of space. So you have time that is being addressed. Don't try to mark off your calendar based on current events and figure out when this glorious kingdom will descend. But before we talk about the kingdom that is descending, he turns and speaks about the kingdom that is present now. You see, what about that? No, no, no. How many of us think about the kingdom in its future aspect? And he's warning here, almost thinking about that so much to the neglect of the presence of the kingdom now. Notice how he does so in the comment of not just time, but the feature of the space regarding the kingdom. Verse 21, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for, right, he's grounding his comment, for here is the bottom line. And remember, this is to the Pharisees who's asking, when is the kingdom going to show up? You tell me, when? And he says this directly to him, or to them. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, it would answer the question this way. Why can't we see the kingdom arrive? by physical signs, current events, and certain what we feel to be apocalyptic items. What you can't see by physical sign because the essence of the kingdom is the reign of God in me. You're looking at it. so, So he says, tell me when the kingdom's coming. He says, you're looking at it. It's in the midst of you. No, 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 no. We're talking about the kingdom of God. Right? And it's in the midst of you. You see, 
he is reinforcing, not that the kingdom is a new concept, it's as old as creation itself. But as I said before, yet with the arrival of our Lord, it has arrived on earth in a totally new way. No, tell us about the kingdom of God. It's in the midst of you. In other words, you're staring it in the face. The kingdom is at hand. Once again, Jesus expresses the central truth regarding the kingdom. That is, the kingdom is God's reign through him. That is the kingdom. What does this mean for believers, Christians, this morning? What does it mean for all who would say, yes, I am a disciple? Before we get into his concern for the disciples in 22 and on, what does it already mean to us to hear such a statement that our Lord makes in 21? For the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It means that by faith in Christ, that is, a faith that rests terminally, its final point, faith rests on Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, becomes a member of that kingdom underneath the reign of this gracious king now. The kingdom of God is in the hearts of all who rest upon Christ as their Savior. The kingdom of God is present in the heart of all whose faith rests on Jesus as he has freely offered to you in the gospel. And not only that the kingdom is present and in the midst of you through Christ, but as you belong to that kingdom today, there indeed is a physical kingdom that will be visible upon the earth. It's not to the either we possess it in our hearts today or we believe it will be coming in the future. Again, those are interrelated ideas. We belong as people. We belong to the age that is to come. While we live in this age, we are citizens of the age that is to come. There truly is an age that is to come, and it will descend. And the deciding factor when that kingdom does descend and manifest itself in the earth will be one factor. And that is, does your faith rest in Christ and Christ alone? Or not? For he declares even here, The kingdom that you're asking about, it is in your midst. But the text concludes to move now from that sense of time and space at that very moment in the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of which he said again, I must preach the good news of this kingdom for I was sent for this very purpose. It moves now into that sense of okay, I I grasp that perhaps my faith rests in Christ and I belong to this this kingdom. Um, My soul, were I to die, I would be in the presence of the Lord. I grasp that I belong to this. But notice our Lord 
says in verse 22 to us, perhaps, that, that to grasp this sense of the kingdom would say, yes, indeed, my faith rests in him. I am a citizen of that kingdom. He says in verse 22, he turns to us this morning and says, he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Do, do you see he's casting it in this other, this other scene now? There, there, there will be days that are coming that are going to get more progressively difficult. There, there is going to be this movement in your own life where you are going to, yes, know you're a kingdom citizen, but long to see the deliverance of that visible, physical reign. These days are coming. He says in verse 22, you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And, and, and they, others, will say to you, look, there it is, or look, it's over here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now, there's a lot going on here and a lot to consider as we move through the text. But one of the simple pieces that we get from his response to the disciples, so again, you think he's speaking to the Pharisees in response, when will it come? Don't worry about that aspect because you won't be able to predict it. Actually, the pressing matter is, it's in the midst of you. No, 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 I, I want to talk about that. Or, no, no, you need to talk about this right here. It's in the midst of you. And then to turn to the disciples and say, there are days coming where you will long to see that visible promised manifestation of the kingdom. And, and in fact, people will gather around and say, it's over there, it's over there, it's over there, he's here, let's run over here to him. Do not go out to them. The first point of this entire discussion between the Pharisees and the disciples is the same. Don't be looking for physical signs. The days will squeeze you. Time will get difficult. And you'll want to see this manifestation of the kingdom. Don't be looking for physical signs. And furthermore, stay away from end time prognosticators. Stay away from them. Now, I can tell you when he's coming. Did you hear about the Mayan calendar? Are we past the Mayan calendar, by the way? I, would, I think so, right? Doomsday was supposed to come, I think, already. I can't recall. We need not. Right? Look, it's over there. It's going to happen here. I think Hawking is making more end-of-the-world predictions all the time. Either which way. And some see this, perhaps, presidential election. You see it everywhere. Trump is the sign of the apocalypse, negatively. Trump is a sign of the apocalypse, positively. Um, or many that got wrapped up into the solar eclipse. That, that was it. If it wasn't the Lord's return, it was going to be an invasion of the aliens. And, and, and you laugh, but that was true, right? Or maybe this would be the year of the Sasquatch. It, who, again, he's, people, you, you'll desire in difficult days, to feel the relief of the visible kingdom descend and set this world aright. You will feel the weight of it. And people will, 
will piggyback that. They will come and they will say, I can tell you something you don't know about it. I can tell you where it's going to appear. I can warn you that it's appearing now. I can take you over to it. And he says, don't follow anybody out there and don't drink the Kool-Aid. Stay away from end-time prognosticators. It's never going to be fulfilled in that manner. No one will know by the signs, no matter how much they charge you. Jesus instructs us directly against getting end-time energy out by following current events and trends. But maybe the question still remains in the text, if you're a disciple and you're hearing this for the first time, is our Lord's giving this kingdom discourse. And he's saying to them, don't try to follow signs and times and get on to, 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 to prophecy doomsday tellers. And, and the question maybe is, why not? Why is that so unstable? Look at verse 24 and 25. Again, for as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, if you're hearing that phraseology as a disciple, there's a huge trigger in that comment. When he uses the title, Son of Man, he's saying it very purposely, right? He, again, the kingdom of God is nothing new. He's reaching all the way in this instance, he's reaching all the way back to Daniel's apocalyptic figure of Daniel 7. Oh, no, the kingdom of God just started. No, no, it's as old as creation itself. And he speaks to them and shifts it from this idea of Jesus of Nazareth here to the idea of the Son of Man who is to return. There's simply four things. I'll just list them briefly. I'll just skip right past them. But there's four pieces that we might not grasp when he says, for the lightning flashes from the sky from one side to the other, so will the... And then, again, if you're in the moment and you're aware of the prophetic word of the scriptures, you're, you're, you're triggered to pop your ears open when he says, the Son of Man, to these four basic components. And maybe you can look at Daniel 7 a little bit later and see this glorious vision. But it is simply, if we were to pull out four pieces from the Daniel 7 vision of the Son of Man, it is this, number one, he comes and descends upon the earth directly from the throne of God. The second piece we see in Daniel 7 is he bears the glory of God. And recall, he shares his glory with no other. Jesus is not a good Sunday school teacher, and he isn't simply a prophet, but he bears the very glory of God, of whom God does not share his glory with anyone other. Thirdly, the apocalyptic man who he speaks to the disciples about the coming kingdom judges all of the earth. And fourthly, Daniel 7's apocalyptic return, that is the king who gathers his kingdom, concludes with the kingdom abiding forever. It isn't another good regime that comes into town 
or a regime change, that things progress and get a little bit better. This decisive moment of the visible kingdom being made manifest is a complete turnaround of the earth's order. And the kingdom will abide in righteousness, justice, and peace forever. This is Daniel's vision of prophecy, and this our Lord speaks to his disciples. That day is going to come, and I am going to be he who returns. Now, I want you to see one more piece about this, however, before we move into the life examples he gives us. And that is this, what does he mean in verse 24 when he says, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. You think, what is is the lightning flashing? What what, what does that mean? Like, what, what is that? And the simplicity of the statement shouldn't be overlooked. The simplicity is this. The arrival of the kingdom of God It's like when you're standing out there and you look and perhaps a storm is gathering and you're in a wide open area and you have a perfect view of the horizon and you see a bolt of lightning split across the sky. You're like, how am I supposed to break down the lightning? How am I supposed to break down the clouds? What does all of this mean? No, it means what you think it means. You can't miss it. Know what I mean? You're like, oh yeah, totally. Like when a bolt of lightning shoots from one side of the sky to the other, and you can see that, that's what it'll be like. Don't worry about seeing all the precursory signs. When it comes, you won't be able to miss it. So you see the point, and and, and that drives us to the point of the entire passage. The point is... The danger for each of us is not that we will miss the kingdom and we will miss our king when he arrives. That's not the danger. Someone says, you need to get these newspaper clippings and really digest them because I'm telling you, doesn't the Bible say such and such and such and such and such and such? Hey, look at the state of Israel. Hey, over here, what about Iran? Look at all the nuclear. Look at North Korea. They're unhinged. Okay, well, hey, this is the end of the world. This is what the Bible says. No, actually, no one's in danger of missing it by not being able to rightly assign all the current events to it. This is the danger of the entire passage. This is the danger for all of us. Not that we will miss its arrival. Rather, we will simply fail to be spiritually ready when it does arrive. Don't worry about missing it. Worry about what it means for you when it arrives. He gives us a couple of examples. For instance, some who were spiritually not ready for it. Look at verse 26 and following. He says, let me give you a a for instance of where we've seen some things like this before. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. What does that mean? It's self-interpreting. Verse 27, they were eating and drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. They weren't in bunkers. 
They weren't looking for the signs of the times. They were eating, drinking, marrying, having a good old time until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed everybody. Oh, so that reinforces the idea that lightning blitzing across the sky is an obvious indicator that no one can miss the kingdom. Yeah, kind of like when the flood came. How many people missed it? No one. It will come, and it will be decisive, and it will be conclusive. And when it appears, you will not take stock and say, well, hang on, I can see the kingdom. It's almost to Pittsburgh. I better repent and get right. It's approaching, I've been told. Just like those who mocked Noah. Eating, drinking, mocking, giving in marriage, and marrying. And then, oh wait, it's starting to rain. And then a flood. In other words, the kingdom of God will come upon the earth in the midst of everyday life being lived. It will come when all of us are not in the worst possible condition we've ever been, and we know thereby that there's multiple signs in the sky indicating as such, but rather the kingdom of Christ will come upon us when we are all at business as usual. You see, there are no precursors whereby you can put off what I'm saying to you today because you've got plenty of time. I I don't need to heed the word. No, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of this kingdom for I was sent for this purpose. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is always at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Further, the writer of Hebrews says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, I'll just wait until I see the signs. Our Lord says, no, the kingdom's not coming with signs to be observed. It will come upon you like that flash flood. It'll happen in a moment. Then he gives a final warning. Let me finish the text with you. As you see, he gives us our second example and then leads us into a final warning this morning that I trust each of us will wrestle through and heed. Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. You know all about that, don't you? They were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, Seems very much similar to what we're doing right now, right? Life is business as usual. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It was in a moment in the midst of life. So he says to us, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man, the apocalyptic figure, the King Eternal, is revealed to all the earth. You'll be living life as usual. And it will happen like that. He then concludes this way. It's very interesting. Please take note, verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop 
with his goods in the house. He's trying to help you conceive of urgency. Don't come down, um, not come down to take them away. Don't, don't, Don't gather your items. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. What does that mean? Well, let me clarify for you. Remember Lot's wife. An interesting warning there, isn't there? Communicating this sense of imminency, it will happen in a moment. Remember Lot's wife. How does that make sense for me in this moment to remember Lot's wife? Will you recall, and I don't have time, as you know, to go into it. We'd be there a whole other hour here. I'll save you the trouble. I'll give you the cliff notes. Genesis 19, right? Sodom and Gomorrah was going to be destroyed. The angels appeared to Lot and his family, gathering Lot's family in a work of grace, really because of Abraham, but gathering Lot's family together and drawing them out. He warned them. Do you remember the central warning to Lot's family of deliverance? Don't look back. Seize upon the moment of urgency and don't look back. As they're fleeing to safety, destruction is being dealt. Remember Lot's wife. She looked back. Now, at that moment, in Genesis 19, she has turned into a pillar of salt. And maybe you've thought before, prior to even wrestling with this text, you thought, that seems like a pretty disproportionate punishment. Like, I, like, all of us would probably have wanted to kind of be like, what is going on? Oh, no. So you think, wow, that seems so severe. Um, what's going on there? Lot's wife looked back, as is the commentary here of our Lord, because she loved her life in Sodom. She cared for what was being done back there. Her heart was still there. Do you see the warning? Remember Lot's wife. Let's see the final warning of the passage. He makes sense of it, what I just said to you right here in the text. How am I, what am I supposed to remember about Lot's wife? She loved the world. And she didn't live through faith. Because he adds to you and I this warning of Lot's wife, verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Remember Lot's wife. Remember what? Whoever seeks to preserve his old life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, take it. Take all of it. Take all those external measures whereby I can vainly conceive of my life as successful. Take it away from me. 
whoever lays his life down through faith will keep it. The final word I tell you, see, see he's, he's trying to say to you and I this morning with a word of urgency, I tell you, in that night, the night of the Son of Man, when, 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 when all that you've wanted as a believer occurs, Christ descends as he ascended. He does descend in return and sets up his final eternal kingdom where justice, peace will prevail. Righteousness and holiness, sinlessness will be our experience. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. Do you see? That, that, that's Lot and his wife. There's two there. Do you see it? It's not about proximity to faith. It's about faith's possession. You won't be saved because your husband believes. And you won't be delivered because your wife believes. It's not about proximity. It's about possession. So he says, just like that, just how Lot was saved, but his wife was not. Don't forget the lesson that's learned there. One of them will be taken and the other one will be left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other one left. And they said to him, where will they be taken? Which is an interesting piece. I don't have time to develop the idea of the rapture. But it's interesting, right? Think about the question. Where will these folks be taken? The final warning of the passage. He said to them, where the corpse is. Do you see? You want to remain. You don't want to be taken. You're going to take them where? Where the corpse is. There in that place, the vultures will gather. It's the second picture of, you know, you won't miss it. You see the vultures gathering. Oh, something died over there. The sign is obvious that something died over there. Where are you taking them? Where the vultures gather. There will be the corpse. You won't be able to miss it. It will be decisive when the kingdom descends. The function of this passage for our lives is to drive us away from prediction. When, 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 signs of time, signs of time, North Korea, Russia, who, Trump, I don't know. Away from prediction and unto faith in preparation. There won't be a precursor wave that will let you know the tidal wave is coming except the one you have right now. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that reorients our perspective that turns it away from outwardly examining and looking inwardly at faith's possession. 
Let us be clear if we love the Lord or if we love the world. If our heart's possession is in Sodom or if our heart's possession is a faith that abides in you. Remember Lot's wife. It was revealed on that day where her faith abided. Lord, I pray for each one here that their faith abide in you, that it rests terminally and forever upon only one object, and that is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Him alone. If it abides anywhere else, let the Word of God reveal that. Let them hear of the good news of the kingdom, repent, and be saved. We trust and hope in your return. We wait for it. Let us be faithful every day as your people. In Christ's name I pray, amen.